Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe that we only have two more days left in July. It's hard to believe that it was at the start of this month my wife and I were in Philadelphia. And yes, we had a marvelous vacation and we got to do everything we wanted to do. But yet here we are at the end of July. Time sure has moved by quick this month. But then again, the older we get, the faster time moves. And as I've said before, and I say it again, it's up to us as individuals for how we wish to make the most of the time that we do have. Whether it's just doing ordinary tasks on a daily basis or just going somewhere for the day or even taking a week's trip, a.k.a. vacation. The bottom line is the older we get, the faster the time goes by but we've got to make the most we've really got to make the most out of it but here we are again discussing uh, signing their rights away the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the U.S. Constitution by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diagnes well we're going to now um, shift gears and discuss a new state you know we uh, just wrapped up the uh, two-part series on Pennsylvania One question I did forget to ask you all is this. How many states border Pennsylvania? The only reason I ask this one is because um, back in 1787, the number of states that border Pennsylvania today was not the same as, was not the same compared to 1787. Although I can say this, in today's time, there are more states that border Pennsylvania versus 1787. Well, in 1787, there were four states that bordered Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland. But in today's world, there are six states. I've already mentioned the first four. What two other states border Pennsylvania? How about Ohio? And how about West Virginia? So there you have it, folks. In 1787, there were four states that bordered Pennsylvania, and now there are six. Just a little uh, 101 geography for you all, but hey, never hurts to be reminded of of how far we've come in 233 um, some odd years. So what state are we going to be discussing for this uh, podcast episode? Well, I'll tell you this, it's another middle colony. How about Delaware? Do any of you all know for whom uh, Delaware is named after? I know the answer. I don't know if many of you all know, but I can share it with you all. I know that the state of Delaware is named after um, a fellow named um, Thomas West, who was also known as Lord Lord Delaware. He was the one who basically um, helped... um, resurrect the uh, Jamestown uh, colony. In other words, uh, those who had survived that horrific starving uh, time period from the winter of 1609-1610, about only 50, about 50 people survived, but of course over a hundred died at best. They had already decided they were going to abandon uh, Jamestown and go back Pretty much go back home to England. Well, they spotted another ship somewhere along the Chesapeake Bay, and it was uh, 
Thomas West, a.k.a. Lord De La War. He basically told them to reverse course and go back to their original dwellings. He had another group of men with him, or people, I should say, and basically the colony was saved because of Thomas West, a.k.a. Lord De La War. For those of you who live along the Chesapeake Bay, have you ever heard of the Delmarva Peninsula? Delaware, Maryland, Virginia. Delmarva is short for all three of those states because the Chesapeake Bay. Of course, the Chesapeake Bay has many estuaries or tributaries that, um, that flow besides in just uh, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. I mean, you've got estuaries and tributaries that go far, as far north as into um, the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania and as far north as into New York State. But we better um, focus on what's really at stake here with Delaware. Our uh, leadoff bonus question will be the following. What other state besides Pennsylvania had more than four delegates present in Philadelphia? Of course, we know Pennsylvania produced eight delegates, but did any state come to the uh, Constitutional Convention with more than four? How about Delaware? Delaware had five. So we're going to be learning about two of the five um, men in this uh, podcast episode. Not that the other three weren't interesting, but there again, with time and all that, we've really got to you know narrow it down to what we think is um, reasonable and what is uh, worth sharing with you all so that you really do get your, um, I don't know if I'd say your money's worth out of it, but you really come away with uh, learning about something. If it's not the whole package, it's at least something that you come away with. So our first delegate is going to be the following, uh, George Reed. I didn't really know anything about George Reed until I had read um, from a few years back Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. So is it fair to say that George Reed was one of six uh, delegates whom had signed the Declaration of Independence that also signed the United States Constitution? Yes. He was born on September 18, 1733 in Cecil County, Maryland. But the family moved to Delaware when George was very young. It's another example right there, folks, of, um, of signers who hailed from one state but moved to another state at some point in their lifetime, most notably when they were of a young age. What profession did George Reed enter into when moving to Philadelphia, where he studied under John Molin's tutelage? Okay, what profession do you all think uh, George Reed um, entered into? Was it medicine? Was it law? Or was it silversmith? How about law, choice B? And John Moland, from what I've gathered, went on to um, mentor several other prominent uh, men whom had illustrious careers, being lawyers. Uh, What I can point out is that John Moland, to some degree, would remind me of Virginia's George Wythe, because George Wythe himself uh, mentored a lot of 
well-known Virginians whom went on to have illustrious careers, most notably Thomas Jefferson. George Wythe also mentored uh, James Monroe. John Marshall, who would go on to become a Chief Justice to the United States Supreme Court, as well as another Virginian later on down the road whose uh, presence would be of significant importance throughout a great deal of the uh, 19th century up until about the mid-1850s when his time um, ended being none other than Mr. Henry Clay. So, yes, uh, George Reed studied uh, law, but in 1753 he gets admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar, and in 1754, he goes back to Delaware and establishes a practice in Newcastle. Was 1763 a good year for George Reed? Okay, before I uh, give you all the answer to that question, what, what, what all do we know about 1760, 1763? What war comes to an end? the French and Indian War. So, besides this Seven Years' War coming to an end, how is it that 1763 is a good year for Mr. George Reed? Well, for starters, he, ma he gets married. He marries a woman named Gertrude Ross Till. And he also gets appointed by John Penn, whom is directly connected to Mr. William Penn, who was the founder of Pennsylvania. He gets appointed by John Penn, who is the proprietary governor, <clears throat> to, the, to the position of attorney general for three Delaware counties, most notably Newcastle, Kent, and Sussex. And what do you know? Delaware, being such a small state, only has three counties. And it just so happens that those are the three counties that, represent, that make up um, modern-day Delaware. And how ironic that um, there is a county not far from where I live called New Kent County, and we do have a county called Sussex County. And what do you know? There are places in England called Sussex, Kent, and Newcastle. George Reed served in the Colonial Assembly of Delaware for um, 12 sessions from 1764 all the way to 1776. Well, what do you all think about Delaware in terms of where it would have stood? Most notably before 1776 and going into 1776, would you say there are more patriots or loyalists in Delaware? The answer is loyalists, folks. Most of your middle colonies have populations that are... Um, Loyalists. In other words, loyalists are in the majority, patriots are in the minority. But well before 1776, <clears throat> Delaware had in fact been greatly divided into political factions regarding relations with king and parliament. Okay, for those who um, favor reconciliation with the, with the king and parliament, what party do you think they would have fallen under? The court party. If you wanted all-out separation, a.k.a. independence from England, you would have fallen into what is called the country party. So, where do you all think George Reed 
stands. Is he in the court party whom favors reconciliation, or is he in what's called the country party that wants all-out separation from England? Well, I will have to admit this, folks. George Reed actually favors reconciliation. He has favored reconciliation for some time with England. He is not the only person in Delaware who favors reconciliation. As a matter of fact, the next delegate we discuss in this podcast episode might as well have um, been the founder behind reconciliation. Was it a bad thing? No. But his idea and mindset behind reconciliation is certainly worth studying about. So, yes, George Reed favored reconciliation. However, it would not be until late June into early July 1776 that George Reed himself finally decided to go along on board by agreeing to and signing the Declaration of Independence. Perhaps George Reed must have come to his senses and realized that after having sent that olive branch petition overseas to King George III, and that we didn't get a response back in return, that maybe King George III really didn't care about his subjects after all, that he didn't really care how his subjects had had been <clears throat> enormously impacted by all that unfair, um, by all the unfair practices and pieces of legislation that Parliament had, had enacted, despite some of them being repealed, like the Stamp Act, the Townshend uh, duties, or AKA Townshend Act. The bottom line is, is that um, many in the Second Continental Congress, or let alone just in Congress in general, know that um, King George III and Parliament have lost all, um, they've lost their minds. Of course, George Reed probably did feel somewhat uncomfortable, perhaps abandoning his principles, but at the same time, he knew that he had to put country first before um ideological interests. What duties did George Reed take on back in Delaware while the Revolutionary War was going on? He oversaw a committee that drafted the Delaware State Constitution. He was elected Speaker of the House for the uh, Delaware Legislature from 1776 to 1778. And he, Reed himself almost um, <clears throat> became a prisoner of war. <clears throat> well, usually when I think of prisoners of war, I usually think of um, those who are fighting out on the battlefields. But it turns out that George Reed got out in the nick of time before um, being taken prisoner by British forces who had invaded Delaware. The invasion was so bad that they captured the current head of state, or a.k.a. the current governor, being John McKinley. So can you imagine, folks, an outside enemy with so much power, uncontrolled, unchecked, that they just came in out of nowhere and took the governor hostage. So George Reed becomes the accidental governor. Somebody has to be running the state, folks. And to think at this time, there's no such thing as um, what we would now know as presidential succession, 
But at the same time, there was no such thing as gubernatorial succession during this this uh, period of um, of uncertainty. Here we are fighting a war with the mightiest empire in the world, and now all of a sudden they have troops dispatched to Delaware to basically kidnap the um, governor. The early 1780s saw George Reed serve as a judge to the Court of Appeals in Admiralty cases. Uh, I found this out, and it is worth sharing with you all. This uh, Court of Appeals in Admiralty cases became known as the Court of Appeals in Cases of Capture. Why is this important, folks? Because this was the first federal court in the United States court. So this was the precursor to the uh, United States Supreme Court. It might as well have been the precursor to uh, what we now know as the federal district and uh, federal circuit courts. This um, court, being the Court of Appeals in Cases of Capture, had um, authority over cases involving capture of enemy ships and cargo. This court existed from uh, 1780 to 1788. So it pretty much ended right after um, the majority of the states ratified the Constitution. Most notably, I would say, like New Hampshire, because we learned early on that New Hampshire was the ninth state that ratified the Constitution. And by doing so, being that ninth state, their approval, or a.k.a. ratification, allowed the Constitution to become a legal binding document. Remember, folks, we had to have nine out of 13 states to um, approve the Constitution that um, would make it a legal binding document. Yes, you would want all 13 states, but nine was the magic number. Did George Reed attend the 1786 Annapolis Convention? You know, remember that convention only produced um, delegates from five states. Only 12 delegates showed up. So that would mean if you have 12 delegates in five states, that means about uh, 2.4 or maybe at best three delegates per each of the five states that came. But on average, about two. Yes, uh, George Reed did attend that 1786 Annapolis Convention, but ironically, he wasn't in total favor at the start of completely scrapping the Articles of Confederation. But whom do you think persuaded Reed differently? In other words, to think outside the box. Was it Alexander Hamilton? James Madison, or George Washington? Don't get me wrong, I believe George Washington and Alexander Hamilton could have easily persuaded uh, George Reed. But how about James Madison? I can't wait to talk more about him when we get to Virginia. Because I, I, I probably should say this now, but I will say it again when we do talk about Virginia. To understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into being. I didn't come up with that saying. I read um, an article some years back on James Madison, and I somehow vividly remember that saying in the article, to understand James Madison is to understand how the Constitution came into being. Now, I know that uh, Delaware is just one of a handful of small states, 
you know, when I think of small states, I do think of Delaware. I think of uh, Maryland. I think of New Jersey. I even think of Rhode Island. But during the Constitutional Convention, which state do you think was, in fact, the smallest state represented? Was it Delaware? Was it Maryland? Or was it New Jersey? The answer is Delaware. George Reed himself led the way behind supporting the New Jersey plan. Remember what the New Jersey plan was, folks? One vote, regardless of size. So no matter how big Virginia is, and no matter how small Delaware is, those states, along with every other state, will get one vote, regardless of size. I could see how George Reed would have been skeptical of the Virginia plan. After all, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts are the three largest states out of the 13 uh, states. I could see how George Reed would have been fearful that larger states would have gotten more attention to the point where the little guys would have been left behind. But you know what? George Reed is not the first and he's not the last to, to come to his senses and realize that, hey, Roger Sherman's Great Compromise plan is the saving package here. How so? Well, rep representation in the House would be based upon population. But no matter how big or small your state is, each state's going to get equal representation in that upper body, a.k.a. the Senate. And how many senators are there, folks, per each state? Two. No matter how big or small you res no matter how big or small the state you reside in, you're always guaranteed two senators. So um, George Reed um, feels obviously feels good about this great compromise plan to where he can actually breathe a sigh of relief. Now in 1789, what big um, monumental um, I don't know if I'd say achievement, but big monumental uh, step does George Reed um, get asked to do on behalf of the state of Delaware? The Delaware General Assembly elected George Reed as one of the state's first U.S. Senators, where he affiliated himself as a Federalist by supporting the federal government's role in taking over state debts to establishing a national bank. I'm sure some of you all are wondering, um, Hasn't it always been the practice that the people elected their senators? Uh, the answer is no, folks. For a long period of time, state legislatures were the ones who elected the U.S. senators. That law, or, or policy rather, I should say, uh, changed at the start of the 20th century around um, 1913, I'm going to say. It was also about the same time when the federal government finally um, was given the power to um, levy income taxes. So in the early 20th century, and this was before 1920 when women finally got the right to vote, that, um, that the, um, I believe it was the 17th Amendment that, was, um, that came about, 16th or 17th Amendment came about allowing for um, direct election of U.S. Senators, meaning direct election by the people and not by the state legislatures. So just keep that in mind, folks. So if I, come, if I mention that again, you'll know that, hey, at one time, 
there uh, there was um, at one time our U.S. senators were not always um, elected directly by the people. They were uh, elected directly by their state legislatures. Uh, what position did George Reed assume in 1793? Was it another uh, federal position, like AKA serving in George Washington's cabinet, or did he uh, take on a position in his home state of Delaware? He took on a position in his home state. He went on to serve as the Chief Justice to the Delaware State Supreme Court, which he held up until his death. What honor did, I'm gonna, this is a bonus question for you all, what honor did Delaware as a state have that was a unique first? Many of you all are probably wondering, and have been wondering for a while, which state was the first of the 13 colonies, or AKA states, to actually ratify the Constitution? Delaware, folks, became that first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution on December 7, 1787, hence earning the nickname, the first state. And how ironic that for Delaware being the smallest state represented at the Constitutional Convention had the honor of being that first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. So even the small states, folks, have unique firsts about them. George Reed um, lived to be 65 years old. He died on September 21st, 1798. And what's unique for him is that he did get to uh, see George Washington serve two consecutive terms as president. He also got to um, live to see um, presidential transfer of power take place from one outgoing administration to an incoming new administration. George Washington steps down in 1797. He hands over the reins of the presidency to his vice president, Mr. John Adams. George Reed was truly, in fact, a leader behind speaking on behalf of Delaware's constituents. After all, he led the way for the, at the Constitutional Convention. So, there you have it, folks. We learned about why Delaware got its nickname, the first state. We've also learned about a, um, a prominent uh, man in Mr. George Reed, but we still have a lot more to go. And our next delegate is going to be someone that, um, that many of you all probably don't know about, but I'm here to tell you as much as I can about him. There haven't been a whole lot of books written about him, but I will tell you this. I did read a book on him back at the start of the year that, uh, as a matter of fact, was a book that it's well worth reading, but it was also the first book on this man that had been written in quite some time. So who do you think uh, we'll be discussing from Delaware? His name is Mr. John Dickinson. Okay, here's our leadoff question for John about John Dickinson. What do John Dickinson and George Washington have in common? I know that's an odd question, but there is something unique here, folks. Both men were born in 1732. Whereas George Washington was born in Virginia, Dickinson originally hailed from Maryland. 
hey, they both, um, you know, were born in states that um, bordered one another. How about that uh, for uh, a unique um, comparison? Was Dickinson's father a wealthy landowner? Yes. John Dickinson's father had land holdings in Maryland at one time which comprised of five farms in three counties totaling 2,500 acres. Now I did read where Dickinson's father eventually amassed land acreage that went as high as 10,000. But I just thought it was very interesting at one time to find out that, that uh, his land holdings comprised of five farms in three counties that totaled 2,500 acres. You know, that's not bad at all in terms of um, wealthy landholding status. Of course, usually when I think of wealthy landowners, I, the one person who always comes to my mind is uh, Robert Carter, a.k.a. King Carter, uh, because his land holdings stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. If I'm not mistaken, I believe he may have owned a ha half a million acres at best. And I learned that uh, when visiting Shirley Plantation one time, uh, they had told us there that um, that Mr. Carter, of course there were a number of Mr. Carters, but Robert Carter, uh, a.k.a. King Carter, at one time was the wealthiest, not only the wealthiest landowner in Virginia, but the wealthiest landowner throughout all of North America. So um, I should also point out, too, that uh, John Dickinson's father was also a judge, and he was reared in a Quaker home. Quakers are very interesting people during this time, most notably in Pennsylvania. Uh, if you read more about the Quakers and their role during the American Revolution, you, you will learn some things that will be uh, that will come as a shock. But then again, history is full of um, surprises that aren't always, um, how do I say it? Sometimes history is full of surprises that aren't always to our liking, if that's a, a nicer way to sum it up. But uh, what area of study did John Dickinson take up at age 18? Did he study medicine? Did he study, um, did he apprentice to become a blacksmith or did he go into studying law? Well, the answer is choice C, law. He went to Philadelphia and studied under Mr. John Moland. Wasn't that name familiar when we talked about George Reed? And yes, Mr. John Moland also taught a future Declaration of Independence and U.S. Constitution signer named George Reed. So it's probably fair to say, folks, that uh, George Reed and John Dickinson got acquainted with one another while studying uh, law in Philadelphia. Now, 1753 is very important because John Dickinson will depart for London, England, where he stays for three years by studying at Middle Temple. I know that, that sounds like an odd name, Middle Temple. Well, it turns out that Middle Temple is one of uh, four courts of inns where men could go to study law. Of course, Oxbridge, Oxbridge and um, rather uh, Oxford and uh, Cambridge rather are around at this time. I don't know if they um, have law schools at that time, but the most prestigious ones were uh, going to uh, the, the ends of court or what we would know as the Middle Temple. 
1757, shortly after the Seven Years' War begins, John Dickinson gets admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar by beginning his career as a barrister. I didn't know anything about a barrister until I decided it was worth looking up. It's one thing to say that so-and-so is a barrister, but if we don't know what that means, then why are we even sharing it? But I know better, and, and I did my homework on it. A barrister is a lawyer who often concentrates in matters like litigation. Well, when I think of litigation, how about class action lawsuits? They may not have dubbed it as class action lawsuits in the 18th century, but that's how it's um, coined in today's uh, terminology. How did, um, moving on now to uh, the mid-1760s, this is, you know, we're now into that post-French and Indian War era, but we're also entering into a time where many in colonial America are now beginning to question Parliament's uh, actions 3,000 miles away. So how does John Dickinson go about taking a stand against Parliament's infamous Stamp Act of 1765? You know, the, the legislation that required stamps on all legal documents, including marriage licenses. So good luck trying to get married in 1765 if you are in opposition to this um, piece of legislation that simply was the one that um, led to that famous rally cry, taxation without representation. So it, did John Dickinson engage in what we would call unruly behavior, that is, engaging in mob-like activities? No. Dickinson goes to um, New York in October of 1765. He represents Pennsylvania at what was called the 1765 Stamp Act Congress. He wrote a very, very um, eloquent um, document called the Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Sounds like a precursor of sorts to what Thomas Jefferson would write, the Declaration of Independence. But Dickinson's Declaration of Rights and Grievances focuses, it may not focused on 30 or so grievances, but it focused on the grievances that were at issue around this time, most notably 1765. Dickinson's Declaration of Rights and Grievances questioned Parliament's authority behind imposing measures that failed to provide essential rights to the governed, a.k.a. the people, which in this case, the people would have needed to have been the ones to have submitted direct consent to the governing body a.k.a. Parliament in this case. Parliament makes the laws, or like any legislative branch or body would be making the laws. Dickinson believed that colonists had the same rights as people in England. So in other words, it was one thing for Parliament to have passed this legislation, but what did Parliament forget to do? They forgot to ask consent. They forgot to ask, they forgot to get the people's permission. Do we have your permission to pass this legislation? Because by passing this legislation, you will be helping us with 
with raising revenue. These taxes will go towards revenue that can make up for for the deficits that we're facing, and especially from the aftermath of the French and Indian War. Had Parliament's members asked, they would have had to have sent it in a letter, because we don't have telephones at this time, but the bottom line is there had to be some form of direct consent. When you don't have direct consent, then how can you have any true bond of trust or any kind of mutual agreement where both parties um, can benefit? Will this be the first, or rather I should say the last time, that John Dickinson uh, voices his concerns through, through writings? No, it won't. So, in the aftermath of the Stamp Act, Parliament repeals that in March of 1766. It was supposed to go, it went into effect in November of 1765, but it only lasted four months after that time. So, just when we think we're safe and that Parliament learned its lessons, it didn't. 1767 is another test. The Townshend Acts, named after uh, Charles Townshend, how does John Dickinson respond after Parliament passes the Townshend Acts? Dickinson writes a series of essays titled Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania to the Inhabitants of the British Colonies. The essays led Dickinson to speak out against unfair, improper taxation practices, but at the same time, what did the, these essays not advocate? Uprisings. In other words, folks, Dickinson is advocating reconciliation. In other words, he's, try, he's made a lot of eloquent points. Okay, you have tried to pass legislation you, you rather you've, you've, you may have succeeded on your end, but what you didn't succeed in is getting your subjects direct consent. Am I going to go and um, vandalize a fellow Tory's property like people do in Boston? No, not in Dickinson's eyes, but I can get my voice out properly by expressing to you all in articles my objections towards your um, unfair practices, or rather improper taxation practices. July 1770, uh, why is that an important year for John Dickinson? Well, when I think of 1770, I think of uh, what happened on the night of March 5th, the Boston Massacre. Four months after the Boston Massacre in July 1770, John Dickinson married Mary Norris, whom just so happened to be the daughter to one of Philadelphia's richest men. Talk about some nice connections right there, folks. It's one thing to get married, but in this day, but during that time, when you got married to someone who had um, a lot of money, who had lots of connections, that really helped enhance your status, but it also helped you make more new connections as well. The greater the connections you have, the greater the likelihood that you're going to be able to um, to do an assortment of new things that will simply enhance your image 
and enhance your um, credibility. Basically, it's fair to say that for John Dickinson marrying Mary Norris, whose father is one of the richest men in Philadelphia, the possibilities for him will go beyond the sky ceiling. John and uh, Mary Dickinson have five children, but sadly only two would survive to adulthood. Did John Dickinson serve as a delegate to the First and Second Continental Congresses? Yes, he did. Despite his support behind the non-importation agreements, a.k.a. boycott of British imported goods, John Dickinson is still favoring reconciliation with England through his works, best known as the Olive Branch Petition. And when did the Olive Branch Petition go into play, folks? Did that go into play during the First or the Second Continental Congress? The Second. This was adopted on July 5th, 1775, and signed on July 8th of 1775 as a final attempt to avoid war between England and her subjects, a.k.a. 13 colonies. And is it fair to say that John Dickinson wasn't alone? Well, we already know that George Reed favored reconciliation up until the end, but were there any other delegates outside of Delaware whom actually wanted to um, go through with this Olive Branch petition and did support it? The answer is yes. Some of the men I'm going to mention names to might come as a surprise, but we must keep in mind that for many of these men, they firmly wanted to believe that England would wake up to her senses and realize that what she had been doing all along was not appropriate. Not just appropriate, not, not just so much that it was inappropriate, but that it was um, undemocratic. How about men like Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, John Rutledge, to Thomas Jefferson? These men served on the drafting committee that helped uh, John Dickinson go about... Um, formulating the Olive Branch Petition. So many of you all are probably wondering to yourselves, what would it take for John Dickinson to change his mind and vote for independence instead and doing away with reconciliation altogether? For John Dickinson, um, based off of the book I read back at the start of the year called The Cost of Liberty, the Life of John Dickinson by William Murchison, and again, it's a very good read, and I strongly recommend reading about it, reading it if you all want to know more about John Dickinson, but what I've come to see with regards to John Dickinson and independence is the following. For Dickinson, independence required broad support, meaning it had to be overwhelming. But for Dickinson, a plan had to already be well in place. And why is that? Because it's one thing to want separation from England. But if you don't have a government already, already lined up 
that will cater to the needs of those men whom are already in attendance in Philadelphia, if a government isn't already catered, it may not be the best, but if you know it's the best that you can do, then if you already have that set up, then you know you've got something you can work with that will function even during times of hardship. For Dickinson, the plan had to already be well in place to where separation could prevail without needing to fire a shot. In other words, Dickinson wanted independence, he wanted reconciliation, but he wanted, to do, wanted it to be done so without having to go to war. And for some of these men, yes, the thought of going to war was dangerous because who wants to go to war with the mightiest empire in the world? Who's going to take command of this, of what we will eventually call a continental army? And how are we going to go about being able to recruit men to join the army? How are we going to be able to maintain an army? And how long would this war, would a war last? There are so many what-ifs and unknowns. So for Dickinson, someone said for John, somebody, and it may have been from the book I read, but when we wear an apron, we tie a knot in the back. Tying a knot is like a bond. The knot itself represents the 13 colonies bond with, their, with the mother country in England. Once the knot gets untied, and it stays untied, there's no going back. And for John Dickinson, the thought of not going back was a dangerous, was a dangerous uh, matter. Because once we separated from England, and we tried to go about creating a government, who's to say in his eyes that it might even be around a year later? What would, what would we be going about replacing it with altogether? So, in the end, John Dickinson abstains from signing the Declaration of Independence, which allowed Pennsylvania to vote in favor of separation from England. Remember, folks, Dickinson is not a loyalist. He, he wanted reconciliation, but by abstaining, he allowed for others to come in, there, to come in his place and go forward with declaring separation from England. Since Dickinson didn't vote nor sign the Declaration of Independence, what else did he help do in 1776? He went about preparing the first draft to the Articles of Confederation, the document that, um, that tried to be successful, but it obviously would end up being um, an irrelevant document. That's what the United States Constitution um, replaced. In other words, we the, the U.S. Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation. I should also say that Dickinson represented Delaware at the 1786 Annapolis Convention, and he supported the idea behind reforming the Articles of Confederation. Dickinson supported the idea behind a strong central government under one condition as long as the Great Compromise, a.k.a. Roger Sherman's Great Compromise Plan, guaranteed that each state would have equal vote in the U.S. Senate regardless of size. 
So remember, folks, there are a lot of people in Philadelphia who will go along with the Great Compromise Plan just as long as there is equal representation in the Senate, regardless of the, of the size of the states um, that are in existence. It's also worth pointing out that in 1791, when I think of 1791, I think of the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments that were added to the United States Constitution. John Dickinson uh, played a part in preparing the beginning drafts to the United States Constitution's uh, First Amendment. I think we all should know what, um, what freedoms fall under the First Amendment, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, the right to assemble and petition. So who can you thank for getting the um, beginning drafts to, to our First Amendment? Mr. John Dickinson. Did John Dickinson sign the U.S. Constitution? I know this is going to, it sounds like a dumb question. I, I, most of you are probably thinking to yourselves, uh, Kirk, shouldn't you know the answer to that? Well, believe it or not, folks, he didn't. So why should he even be talked about? Well, you know, things did happen back in the 18th century. You know, people did get sick. Unexpected things did come up. And Dickinson was sick during most of, of the uh, convention. And so his fellow friend and delegate, very dear friend who was in attendance, signed on his behalf being none other than Mr. George Reed. Despite John Dickinson's um, differences and his um, views behind separating from England, did Dickinson make a lot of friends in, this, in the First and Second Continental Congresses? Yes, he did. Of course, there were those who had their um, skepticism about him, most notably Mr. John Adams. But who do you think John Dickinson had a lot in common with, political view-wise. I'll give you a hint. He was a Virginian. How about Mr. Thomas Jefferson? What exactly could John Dickinson and Thomas Jefferson have had in common? Each man believed that one's personal faith was a private matter and should not be subjected to open discussion. In other words, a man's personal faith should not be subjected to unnecessary smear tactics. In other words, one's religious faith in their eyes was private. Of course, we all know that Thomas Jefferson did grow up in the Church of England, but by the time he goes to William and Mary, his views are beginning to change about church and state. And many most notably Federalists, will question Jefferson by the time he becomes president. Some, many will call him an atheist. It's a very unnecessary accusation, but there are many Federalists who do not like Mr. Jefferson, and it's all based along um, sectional, a.k.a. regional lines. Thomas Jefferson, by some historians, has been referred to as a deist. In other words, he never really proclaimed that he had a true religion, but yet he was a man who actually attended numerous religious services of all faiths. He was known to attend Anglican services, Methodist services, Baptists. Of course, a lot of this would have changed after his um, 
after his statutes were enacted from the Virginia General Assembly, most notably what was called the Statutes for, uh, for Religious Freedom. Of course, for Jefferson, one of three things that he is remembered for on his tombstone, besides being author of the Declaration of Independence and the, uh, found, and the founder of the University of Virginia, is being the founder to the, the founding father to the stat, on the Statutes for, for, for Religious Freedom in Virginia. So yes, John Dickinson and Thomas Jefferson had a lot in common when it came to uh, personal um, beliefs and views on um, people's uh, religious faiths that needed to be uh, private. Here's another geographical question for you guys, because it does tie in with John Dickinson. Where is Carlisle located in Pennsylvania, and why is Carlisle important? Carlisle is located outside of Harrisburg, which is uh, Pennsylvania's capital, and that's in um, South Central PA. Carlisle is also home to Dickinson College, named in honor of Mr. John Dickinson. John Dickinson and his wife um, gave about 700 acres of land that they owned to where the college um, sits to this day. On February 14, 1808, John Dickinson died at the age of 75, and he is interred at, at, at uh, Wilmington, Delaware. You know, none of our forefathers were perfect, and all of them laid it on the line, whether they saw, regardless of whether they were in attendance in, in the First or Second Continental Congresses and signed the Declaration of Independence, to signing the U.S. Constitution, they laid it all on the line. John Dickinson laid a lot on the line, but yet he still is an ardent patriot. Yes, he may have been reluctant and didn't sign the Declaration of Independence, but yet he still did what was best for his country and was willing to put away personal ideologies that, to me, is an ultimate sacrifice right there. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode, and um, I do believe that we have learned a lot about Delaware, especially knowing that Delaware was the first state to uh, ratify the U.S. Constitution and why it rightfully deserves that um, nickname title, the first state. Well, thank you again, as always, for letting me be on the air with you guys. You all are amazing listeners. I'm very thankful to have all of you, and you all have done a great job of getting the word out to other people, and continue to do that, because that's how we as a greater society can become all the more better educated. The more we learn, the better we will be, not only in the present, but down the road in the future, and we can take whatever we have learned and apply it, but then again, that's up to us. But we also have to be good stewards and learn that while not all of history is pleasant, we also have to do whatever it takes to learn from the past so that the same mistakes don't get made in the future. But we also need to you know, learn as much as possible about why certain unpleasantries did take place during the time that they did occur and how we might not always be able to compare something that happened in the 18th century and apply it to the same standards of the 21st century. 
So again, thank you for listening as always. I look forward to being back on the air again here with you all soon. And um, take care. Stay safe.